Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A group of 15 trade organizations recently surveyed small, women, and minority-owned businesses, in part to gauge their participation and readiness to compete for federal contractors, especially under funding coming from the Chips and Science Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. We get one view from the CEO of Women Impacting Public Policy, Angela Dingle. Ms. Dingle, good to have you with us. It's great to be with you, Tom. And briefly, tell us a little bit about Women Impacting Public Policy, the, the WIPP group that you lead. What, what do you do? Women Impacting Public Policy is one of the leading uh, national nonpartisan organizations in the country that advocates on behalf of America's 14 million women-owned businesses. Uh, our top policy priorities center around creating more opportunities for women-owned businesses to participate in federal contracting. So every year we identify a set of policy priorities Access to procurement is one that has been uh, on our radar screen for some time. So we do this through both advocacy and through education. And access to acquisition by the federal government, that's a big issue because the government, as you know, you know, has a stated goal of small business contracting every year. And in terms of dollars, a lot of them, a lot of the agencies claim, well, we did better than the 23 percent or whatever it is. And I think the Biden administration increased that. And yet a smaller number of individual companies are participating in getting those dollars. And so... Yes, in one sense, access is improving, but it seems like access is decreasing. What's your feeling and what kind of policy changes might reverse that, do you think? Mm -hmm. There are a number of different things that might be causing that. Clearly, the pandemic and the fallout associated with that had an impact on uh, businesses of all sizes that did business, that do business with the federal government, specifically as it relates to women-owned uh, businesses, which is where you know, our sweet spot sits. One of the things that we've uncovered is that 75% um, of the women-owned businesses surveyed reported that corporate and government contracting is really critical to their business strategy. And so it's not just a statistic, it's a narrative about the contributions and the potential of women-owned businesses to generate growth, to create jobs, and to meet the needs of corporate and government buyers. So what do you think federal contracting officers can do? I mean, that's where it, what it devolves to is the individual CO, that 1102, to get a larger base of suppliers into their agencies as opposed to just making sure 23% of the dollars goes out to those types of companies. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, I was just on a call a few minutes ago talking to some women-owned businesses that are you know, really trying to expand their presence in the federal marketplace. And one of the challenges that the contracting workforce has in the federal government is that there's uh, much more work to do and a lot less people available to do that. So education is a key component of what Women Impacting Public Policy, or WIP as we are affectionately known in the marketplace. One of the things that we try to do is educate, right? We try to educate women business owners on what it looks like to do business with the federal government. And we try to educate contracting officers on how best to do business with them. So what tools do they have in their toolbox that are available for them to be able to award those contracts, whether those contracts are women-owned small business set-asides or otherwise. And then from an advocacy standpoint, we are working at the highest levels of government, both within individual agencies like the Small Business Administration, the General Services Administration, and then with Congress uh, as a whole to say, how do we 
How do we level the playing field? How do we make it easier for the contracting officers to buy the products and services that they need? Because when it's all said and done, agencies have a mission that they need to achieve, right? How do we make that process easier for them? But how do we also change public policy so that it is conducive to creating more of those opportunities for small businesses? Does that mean we need to uh, reduce the regulatory burden? Does that mean that we need to allocate more dollars? Does that mean that we need to educate contracting officers on how to uh, set aside or uh, create sole source opportunities for those women business owners. So we really encourage. Uh, we run a we run a national program called Challenge Her. It is a partnership between the Small Business Administration, American Express, and Women Impacting Public Policy, and that is a great educational opportunity. We bring in partners from the public sector, the private sector, and business owners. Right. So if we get a contracting officer that can come and spend the day with us, then they understand, they hear for themselves what the challenges are that the women businesses are running into. They also have an opportunity to meet and identify the women-owned businesses or, or businesses in general that can uh, provide the products and services that they need. So we've we've done that program for years. We've educated over 26,000 women business owners and uh, allows us to form some really good partnerships with agencies to help them to get the product or the service that they need. I always say when I meet a new contracting officer or someone from their contracting side, I go, just call us. Like, just call us. We'll help you find if you need this particular product or this particular skill set, give us a call and we'll try to help you find that. We're speaking with Angela Dingle. She is CEO of Women Impacting Public Policy. And to what extent do you think the lack of regular order, which has become itself regular in establishing full year appropriations for that fiscal year on time, that shortens the time that agencies have to spend the new appropriations, and therefore that might just mitigate against thorough sourcing and market research to find those companies that otherwise could participate. Do you think that's a factor? You hit the nail right on the head, right? The the sales cycle in the federal marketplace has gotten longer for a number of different reasons. The way that the federal government buys is changing over time. When you look at it from a taxpayer standpoint, category management or you know bundling or consolidated, consolidating buying power makes a whole lot of sense from a taxpayer standpoint. But what that means from a small business standpoint is that if you are not in on one of the best in class contract vehicles, where those dollars might get awarded quickly, uh, then you lose out on the opportunity. So that this continuing resolution that we've gone through year after year really puts a strain on small businesses and on the contracting officers to get their jobs done. If they can't get the dollars that they need appropriated until the second or the third quarter of the year, they're obviously going to have to make some uh, quick and easy decisions. We always say they use the easy button, right? Uh, I've got a stack of contracts that I need to award. I'm going to use the easiest uh, contracting option that I have available to me, which might mean I don't go to a small business or I don't go to the small businesses that have the greatest need in terms of being able to make that contracting award. So we have we are always uh, uh, encouraging Congress to pass the budget on a timely basis, do that in a bipartisan matter, because we don't care who's in office. We just want to want to help the government meet its needs. And so we'd really like to see if they can uh, can do that in a way that does not uh, cause small businesses to suffer by waiting so long in the in the fiscal year to be able to get some awards. I mean, we were talking to someone last week and they were saying like a significant portion of the awards are made in the fourth quarter of the year. I mean, that's two-thirds of the way through the calendar year, you know? Sure. And you mentioned the regulatory environment a few minutes ago, and notwithstanding the fact that there are 
hundreds sometimes of standard clauses that end up in federal contracts. That's a, one issue. The other issue is the constant layering on of socioeconomic regulation. How much green gas emissions does your company, which occupies one floor of an office building, produce? The DEIA requirements, other labor practice requirements that have been laid on by the Office of Federal Procurement Policy and also the Office of Contractor Compliance Programs at the Labor Department coming from the administration has been a turnoff for a lot of companies. What's your feeling on some of those layering of socioeconomic goals that only apply in federal contracting? So there, there are a couple ways that you can look at that. Regulatory burden can cause a business owner to lose confidence in their ability to compete. If I am new to the federal government or I've been accustomed to doing business one way and now there's this new way, I might not know how, uh, how best to uh, quickly continue to generate opportunities and grow my business. And in some instances, it's just been a deterrent such that people are saying, no, thanks. I don't want to do business in the federal marketplace anywhere. Right. So looking at it from the small business side, that's one issue. When you think about the broader intent of those forms of programs, DEI programs are very important because when you look at the data, although uh, there has been a goal to set aside a certain percentage of contracting dollars. If we just looked at women-owned business, for instance, the federal government has only made that goal two times in 15 years. So there's a need for the programs. If you if you look at the dollars, it'll be in some instances less than 1% that's been allocated to that particular social economic category. So there, it, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg. Do you completely do away with them in a way to make it easier for everyone to do business? Or do you try to do the right thing, for lack of a better word, with the intent of those programs. Our position has been that we think those programs are important because they do create opportunities for women business owners in particular, because women have a tougher time getting access to capital. And so if, I got, if I've got a program that makes it a little bit easier for me to, uh, to, if it removes a barrier and makes it easier for me to gain access to those opportunities, when I get one, then maybe I can get another one now, start to grow my capacity and be able to provide uh, better services. But doing business with the federal government is interesting. To your point, there are six, I, I can't even remember how many pages there are in the federal acquisition regulation for a small business to understand and have to comply with them can be challenging. I think it's somewhere between the number of pages in the Talmud and in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Somewhere <laughs> you'll find that page number. Yes, indeed. Bottom Definitely. line, though, it's worth pursuing federal contracting in the long run? Oh, it's definitely worth pursuing federal contracting in the long run. It can make or break. I mean, it, it, it can be a game changer and create generational wealth for companies who are just starting out. Some of those very social economic programs that we talk about are the foot in the door. They are, they are the removal of a barrier that would make it impossible to do business with the federal government. The federal government is, is a fortune one, they like to say, right? The biggest buyer in the world. And if you can develop a product or services that helps the federal government to meet a need, right? You don't lead with a socioeconomic program. You don't lead with the fact that you're a woman-owned business. You lead with the capability that you can provide to help us protect the nation, rebuild our infrastructure, you know, create the next uh, innovative solution that we need in space. All of those things are what you lead with. And if and if necessary, then you use those socioeconomic uh, categories to uh, create less of a barrier that allows you to compete because they're still competing for that work. It's not like a socioeconomic designation uh, opens the door and there is no competition. All it does is give you an opportunity to compete. 
in Fair. an area where you may not have been able to do so before. Angela Ningle is CEO of Women Impacting Public Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that survey at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.